My name is Kevin. For those of you who are new, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you not only have a wonderful time, we hope that you feel radically welcomed in this space wherever you come from, no matter who you are. We hope that you find home and uh, some good friends. Um, over the last couple, several years, Spark has relished in not only just the teachings that happen from this particular time and space, but from the community that shares. A couple years ago, we did a series entitled, Why Jesus? And in that series, we asked several Sparkers to come and answer one question, Why Jesus? And so over the course of the next several weeks, we are excited to bring this element back. We have asked a couple Sparkers, a few Sparkers to share a sliver of their story. This is clearly not everything that they can tell you in just a short amount of time that we've given them. But it's an opportunity for you to get to know the community a little bit better, for uh, people of our community to share a little bit more of what's on their heart. And then to, in very short order, answer the question, so why Jesus? What is this thing all about? To inaugurate this next season of Why Jesus, we have our very own Craig Barker. There's a reception. Thank you, for thank you. you. I didn't even, I didn't know I had a fan club. All right. Why Jesus? So my name is Craig Barker. I've been attending Spark for oh, a couple of years now, two maybe. Um, I'm a husband to Renee for 38 years. I'm the father to three wonderful adults um, who are still my children, but they're adults. I'm grandfather to one wonderful little boy, and I've been a Christian my entire life. Um, I was born in Chicago my, while my dad was a student at Moody Bible Institute. We then moved to Southern California. My dad completed his theological degrees at Biola and Talbot Seminary, and then I was a PK, pastor's kid, for quite a few years. So Jesus was everywhere in my life, um, every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, every Wednesday evening at church, and then all the rest of the time at home with my dad, with my mom, with my siblings. We were immersed with Jesus and Christian culture. Whatever I was taught, I, I believed. Um, here's something you might not know about me. I am a rule follower by nature. So it was easy to just accept what I was taught and to believe it. And what I learned was that Jesus and other things made me a Christian. Belief in Jesus and other things made me a Christian. Um, let me diverge a little bit. Renee and I used to love antiques. We would go antique shopping, all these cute old stores, um, look around, see what treasures we could find. And it was interesting, the store's names were antiques and collectibles, antiques and things. Um, if you've done this, you know, it's usually a lot of things and only a few antiques. It's kind of disappointing, but you know, we'd search for those treasures. Well, that was, and to some degree still is, my Christian life. Lots of things like rules, expectations, just simple familiarity, and a little bit of Jesus. In the last five years, I've really been trying to declutter, deconstruct my Christian beliefs, trying to identify and eliminate those other things that aren't so exciting um, and get to the core of what it is to be a Christian, of what it should be to be truly a Christian. And by stripping away the non-essentials, by stripping away those things that don't really matter, um, the one remaining aspect has definitely come into clear view, and that is Jesus. What he did, what he said, who he is, I feel like I'm seeing more clearly what his teaching and example was, by stripping away all the extraneous things, 
I certainly haven't arrived at perfectly clear vision yet, and I know I'll never arrive at perfect application, um, but today I think I'm closer to knowing Jesus' heart than I was yesterday, and, and hopefully I think tomorrow I'll be closer than I am today. That's the goal, just to be on the journey. Um, in the fantastic book called Love Matters More, Jared Baez writes this about Jesus. He kept one thing uppermost in his heart, the love of neighbor and of God, which was unconditional, the sum and substance of the Torah. And he treated everything else, however sacred it was in men's eyes, as man-made, conditional, flexible, and destructible. So why Jesus? Well, in my life, I've kind of changed the question. Sorry, Kevin. And I have to ask, why just Jesus? And the answer is because he is all that is needed. And his example is complete. Thank you. Wow. Thanks, Craig, so much. All right, friends, we're in the middle of a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And today, we're going to cover the topic of love. If you missed the introduction, um, it's in the podcast for, for, uh, from last week. And ultimately, I'm, I'm sure you have a question about all of this stuff. I, I know what you're thinking. First of all, you know, when is he going to get a haircut? Second of all, what second is of, love? that's your question. What essentially is it? So we're going to do our best to try to go through the ideas that I have to share with you amazingly dovetail with what Craig shared. It's amazing how that happens without any preparation or coordination. And obviously, this isn't going to be everything that we can cover about love. And it is ideally predicated upon some of the teachings that I gave from last week. So if you missed that talk, I would encourage you to go back and think through some of the struggles and the challenges that Paul was uh, doing in that. Our English word love actually has very ancient roots. For those of you who have studied linguistic, you know that the uh, Proto-Indo-European root is essentially one of the first primary emergences of the word uh, of our, our modern language, and it manifests itself in ancient Greek and Latin, et cetera, all the way down to English. And it's amazing, it goes all the way back to what scholars suggest, lubiati, which is very close and similar to our current word, love. And the definitions from my understanding of reading some of the literature is that it is actually very similar to the ideas or concepts that we have, kindness, affection, um, attraction, care, these kinds of things. And so when we talk about love, I don't know if there's actually a lot of confusion. There's a lot of nuance, I would say. There's a lot of complication in the sense that there's so many multiple facets. But generally speaking, we have a pretty decent understanding if you look at the dictionary, if you think about how the word love is used. And even when you go back to the original Greek, uh, excuse me, the original languages of the Bible, the Hebrew word is ahava. Everybody say ahava. Ahava is the word that is used, and that is a word that is used between fathers and sons. That's a word that's used between husbands and wives. It's a word that's used between God and humanity. It's also a word that is used for facial cream and you know, making yourself feel a bit younger and all that kind of stuff, because that's how you love yourself, is to take care of yourself. There is another Hebrew word that is found, the word dod. It's also the word for David who is the beloved of God. And fascinatingly enough, scholars would suggest that the Hebrew word dod actually does come from a very similar phonetic root for the word dad. If you trace this back, a lot of people suggest that the 
ways in which our mouths are constructed, like some of the words that get from the gut, from the guttural, from the back of the throat, all the way to the dentals, the D's and the T's, those are harder, but the palatal fricatives, you didn't know that you were going to learn a new word. The, the palatal fricatives of the language, which are the da 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 is one, some of the first um, sounds that babies make. And so that's where the word dad comes from, or at least is hypothesized that the word dad comes from da 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 because that's the first way in which a child can actually make sounds. And it is believed that the word dad actually makes its way and manifests itself through the word dod for love or affection or beloved one. There's another word that is used. Fortunately, this person got their Hebrew tattoo correct. There are some who do not, which is a lot of fun when searching this, and that's the word chesed. Everybody say chesed. Chesed is a word that most scholars and most biblical linguists and people who study this will tell you do not translate. It is untranslatable. In your Bible, it is sometimes translated as loving kindness or long-suffering faithfulness. There's all sorts of different conceptions, but it also includes ideas such as covenant, affection, deep passion. So it's one of those words that is so rich and so meaningful that even our English translations seem to miss the fullness of it. Now, going through ahava, husband, wife, father, son, dad, uh, devotion, affection, um, like, those kinds of things. Chesed, deep, passionate, loving kindness. I can imagine I don't need to teach you that that is part and parcel to the definition of the word love. That's something that, like, you don't want to come to church and hear things that you can look up in a dictionary. So this is what I'm saying, that some of what's going on here, we don't, there's not a, not a terrible amount of mystery. Even C.S. Lewis, I believe he was the one to promote the idea of the four loves, in which he broke down four different Greek words that are found throughout the scriptures to identify the different aspects of how we love. Storge is affection. This would be something uh, similar to parent-child. There's also phileas, or phileo love. This is the love between friends. This is the kind of relationship that you have between buddies or girlfriends. Then, of course, there's eros, uh, eros, of course, is romantic love. Some people consider it sexual love, that kind of um, deep, passionate desire. Actually, eros doesn't necessarily mean sexual or romantic. It actually means desire. I want. And like, yeah, you have to say it with that inflection. I want. And then, of course... C.S. Lewis talks about agape, which is selflessness. And this is the kind of love to which we are supposed to aspire in many ways because this is the kind of love that is close to the love of God. Or at least that's the one that we would think is kind of uh, uh, towards the love of God or most characteristic of the love of God. There's some challenges with this. I mean, that's a very nice breakdown, but it doesn't always follow through passages. You know, when you look this up and you really dig in, it makes for a really great book and it's a really nice outline. But things, of course, are a little bit more nuanced. He's not wrong. There's just nuance. For example, there's two, three words for the word love in this passage, Romans 12. Um, The first one is the word agape, which is, you know, that selflessness kind of God-centered love. But the second word, love, is actually a combination of two words. It's phileo storge. It's like the friendship love of an affectionate kind of love. And then, of course, this last one, 
is also phileas, which is just the phileas without the storge. And it's actually that word affection is the word Philadelphia, which many of you know is the city of brotherly love. That's exactly correct. This word eros doesn't show up in your New Testament at all. There is no erotic love in the New Testament. It only actually shows up in the Bible in a translation of the Greek, of the Hebrew, in only two places, Proverbs chapter 7 and Proverbs chapter 30. And when you look at those verses, it doesn't really look like the same kind of erotic, romantic love that we are all used to understanding. So I won't teach you all that stuff. You can look it up. It's, it's interesting how we pulled all that out and made much of it. I think a lot of us have gotten confused with this idea of love because for some of us who grew up under religious, fundamentalist, evangelical kind of teachings, it was very, very clear that love was what we were supposed to be going for, but love was very much in contrast and the opposite of infatuation. And what is infatuation? I I can't help it. Yes, you're all lusting in church right now. I can't believe you. Why would you do that? (laughs) The reason why this is so is because one particular verse has become prominent in the teachings around love and romance and relationships, and that's Matthew chapter 7. You have heard that it was said, you shall not, I repeat, not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is part of Jesus' agenda of taking a legalistic framework and expanding it to a moral framework. It's not just whether or not you followed the law. It is whether or not you are embracing it wholeheartedly and want to live in accordance with that moral law and actually ingest it into your very being. This became very prominent throughout the uh, 70s and 80s and was very much prominent in Christian culture, so much so that it actually got some airtime in the, in the 70s with this gentleman right here, Jimmy Carter, the president, 1970s. And in a very famous interview with a very famous magazine, which you can look up later, he is quoted as, as saying um, about whether or not he's violated any particular principles or whether or not he's a sinner, he quotes this verse and says, I've looked on a lot of women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times, November 1976. Um, That was the publishing date that the interview got uh, called out later. Of course, the New York Times jumped on this and it became, in that particular time, a really intense, um, what shall we call it, hugabaloo? I don't know what's the right word, where people were saying, I cannot believe we have a presidential candidate who would confess to such salacious, inappropriate, immoral behavior and attitudes. Can you imagine (laughs) a world in which very prominent politicians would confess to, never mind. So, so, it, so people, he lost votes on this. And because he was a very public figure in the face of evangelicalism at that time, it became very prominent about you know, what kind of thinking and teaching is this, uh, is happening within the church, within evangelicalism. Several years ago, when Danielle and I were in Israel, we had the amazing privilege of having somebody on our tour who had been secret service for five different presidents. So I have it on good faith. This is testimony. I don't have evidence. I just have his testimony. I have a testimony from this gentleman that after this hit, after this became public, 
when he was driving whatever, it wasn't the beast at the time, whatever the secret service vehicle was at the time, his wife, Rosalind Carter, leaned over to him and said, Jimmy, you're an idiot. <laughs> But because I'm a Christian, you know, I'll still always love you. And they are still married, of course, to this day. Yes, you are sometimes going to have to marry idiots and be married to them for a long time. So anyway, that's part, part of the deal. So with all of that given, perhaps we could just sum up what is a good definition of love. Here's one possibility. Love is a complex set of emotions, behaviors, and beliefs associated with strong feelings of affection, protectiveness, warmth, and respect for another person. It can also include deep romantic or sexual attraction. Love can also be a virtue representing human kindness, compassion, and affection. The unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the well-being of, other, of others. Pretty nice definition, right? So that's what you get when you ask an artificial intelligence. True. That's exactly what you get when you ask an artificial intelligence. Not too shabby, actually. So my thesis is this. I don't know if you need a teaching on what the definition of love is. I don't know if you need a teaching to tell you that you should be more loving. I don't know if you need a teaching on why or how love is critical and important to our human flourishing to our identity, to our relationships, to our society. It is very, very clear that love is one of the most important and critical elements of what it means to be human, what it means to have relationships, what it means to thrive and to flourish. And you can pick up all sorts of different uh, aspects. For example, Eric Fromm, the famous psychologist, has written extensively about the art of how you engage in these kinds of relationships. Uh, the Yurkoviches have written extensively about how attachment theory, uh, for those of you who knew or were part of the conversation that we had with Crispin Mayfield, on attachment theory and bonding and how you form those relationships, how that applies to marriages and relationships. Leo Biscaglia uh, ran a sociological experiment where he taught a class for three years on love. And it wasn't so much teaching as it was a conversation about how you engage, um, how are people's experiences, what, what are they like, and then try to come up with some sort of um, definitions or some sort of things that you can grab onto. If you're looking for a theological bent, um, John Mark Comer has written Loveology, where he ex goes through extensively about all the various aspects of the biblical definition and articulation of love. And if you need some good inspiration, ah, good old Bishop Michael Curry, uh, love is the way, how to hold on to hope in troubling times. So there's plenty of material out there, and it kind of all depends on what you're looking for and what you're hoping for, what it is that you need at that particular moment. I found Leo Buscaglia's uh, definition at the very beginning, or, or testimony here, to be extremely helpful. We never attempted, nor in three years, were able to define love. We felt, as we grew in love, that to define it would be to delimit it, and love seemed infinite. As one student stated, I find love much like a mirror. When I love another, he becomes my mirror, and I become his. And reflecting in each other's love, we see infinity. Uh, that's poetically beautiful, but I also find it incredibly powerful. That's the power of love. 
yeah, we could go on and on with those clips. This, to me, seems to be a pretty decent place to understand. It is our hope. I mean, for crying out loud, church, we've been saying, love God and love your neighbor ever since day one of Spark. We recite it every single week. So for over 500, what week is this? 562? Have we had that many weeks of Spark? It's been amazing. We've been reminding this community, love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Over five and a half hundred times. And hopefully through other times and other places, we've been reminding ourselves what love is in our context and how critical it is and important. But this is a series on the fruit of the Spirit. So what I'd like to do is twist the idea and try to get our brains to think a little bit differently instead of focusing on love, focusing on something a little bit different, which I think may be core and central, which is, again, I think some of the overlap that Craig's testimony has to what is going on in this list of things of which love is the beginning. First, to note, the word Fruit in this passage in Galatians chapter 5 is singular. There are not fruits. There's one fruit. The idea is that if you happen to be rooted in X, this is what you are going to see. And what is taking place here in Galatians chapter 5 is actually a very common biblical theme and idea. The biblical authors understood and promoted a particular moral logic. And if you can understand this moral logic, you will understand a vast majority of how ethics and morals and principles essentially emerge on the scene. Here's how this moral logic goes. Fruit is simply the result. The result is contingent upon, is predicated upon what is it that you're actually rooted in. And so often what happens is, well, let me explain some. Here, here's a couple of Jesus' teachings. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And here's the logic. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. The moral logic is that there's a connection between what evolves, what, what emerges, what is produced, and the kind of thing that you are. Later on in Matthew chapter 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's not so much about what's coming out of your mouth when people say things. The question is, what's actually in your heart? Do you see the moral logic? There's a connection here. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure. And the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. Can I tell you how much this verse has haunted me my entire vocational life? Because every careless word that I have uttered is recorded and on the internet right now. <laughs> for by your words, you will be justified. You know that saying, it's better to be thought of a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt? You know that quote? Yeah, I live by that every day. The fool, never mind. <laughs> and by your words, you will be condemned. Psalms picks up this same moral logic. 
Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in season. And their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. Grounded in the law, grounded in the teachings, grounded in the Torah, produces good fruit. Of course, this goes back to Genesis. This is my translation here. And God said, let grass, herbs, seeding seed plants, fruit trees bearing fruit of its kind that have seed in them, be upon the land. And it was so. And the land produced grass, herbs, seeding seed plants, fruit trees bearing fruit of its kind, and fruit trees that have seed in them of its kind. The moral logic that we have just explored is that there's going to be results, fruit, produce, the thing that emerges, the thing that you and I experience, the thing that you and I say, the thing that you and I do, how we behave. All of that is the result of something much more critical and much more central, which is what are you rooted in? Where is your heart? What are you planted by? Upon what are you feeding? This is a very consistent moral logic. And it suggests that whatever you see happening in the produce section of your life is really just an indication of where you are actually planted. This is, in biological terms, a species. The species, kind, that whole idea follows after its kind. Birds give birth to birds, humans give birth to humans, etc. And what is the predominant metaphor that is used throughout these passages? Of course, it's the tree. The fruiting tree becomes the ultimate metaphor for this particular moral logic. So if we were going to put this in the metaphorical terms or illustrative terms, there it is. That's the thing we want. Love, that's the thing we want. want. Kindness, goodness, joy, patience, these are the things we want. And so let's figure out how to get that. But you don't figure out how to get that by focusing on the fruit. You figure out how to get that by focusing where? on the root. Now, here's what I would propose to you, my friends. The reason why the previous discussion about love and infatuation seems to be really critical for those of us who have grown up in religious or evangelical or fundamentalist kind of context, religion has frequently given the impression that your fruit is what is most important. If you have grown up in a very rules-based kind of culture, in which your behavior did not match with what it is that the community or the religion or the stipulations were requiring, I bet every single one of us would probably be able to testify that there were moments when it was behavioral modification. And your job as a good Christian, as a good believer, as a good religious person, as a good member of this society, of this uh, community, is to just act this particular way. Now, depending upon who you are, what industry you might happen to be in, what your philosophy of the behavioral sciences might be, behavior modification might actually be a pretty decent application. But that is not the moral logic that is being promoted here in the scriptures and in our Christian tradition. The moral logic is it actually goes the other way around, which is why last week's message is really critical and important. He spends an entire paragraphs and paragraphs arguing for what is really core and central 
to your identity and to your faith, very much, again, dovetailing with Craig's testimony. So here we go. We've got the tree. We've got all of these things. These are things that we want to see happen. And gosh darn it, as we talked about last week, wouldn't be amazing if we saw all of these things flourish in our community, in our world. And the answer is yes. But what the moral logic of our faith tradition would suggest is, if we merely just work on trying to become more generous, trying to have more self-control, trying to be more loving, we may be missing a fundamental way in which this spiritual understanding works. And that is to say, all of this is predicated on or simply the results of the produce of what actually is down underneath the ground. In what are we actually rooted? Where are we drawing our sense of identity? How are we understanding the core, central, most fundamental elements of who we are and of our faith? And so, rather than trying to focus on this, and that is what makes you a good Christian, Rather than trying to focus, again, this is all what Paul talked about when we talked about last week in this lesson. Rather than focusing on the works of the law, rather than focusing on you trying to make sure that you obey every single element, which by the way, there are a lot of elements, so you could be, it could take a long time to figure out how to honor the Sabbath correctly and how to obey all of these commandments correctly, you know, not envying and not lying and not carrying God's name in vain, all of these things you could really, really focus on. And there are times when we need to learn more about that. But the moral logic here is that if you only focus on that, you'll be missing the more important, more central, more fundamental piece, which is we have to focus here. This is what we want to focus on. Who are you ultimately grounded in? Can we strip away all the other things that seem to be blinding us or hindering us from the most core and central thing in which we are rooted? Danielle has a friend named Adria, and the Hebrew word for root is shoresh. And so she would, when people would be rude and a little bit inconsiderate, she would be like, maha shoresh, what's the root? It's kind of like, what's your problem? But she changed it to like, what is your root, dude? <laughs> And I kind of like that. It's a little snarky because Adria's snarky and Danielle has a lot of snarky friends. <laughs> but the saying is actually pretty nice. Everybody say, Ma? Ma. Hashorish. Ma Hashorish. What is the root? What's going on? Now, you might be a couple steps ahead of me. What does Paul say the root is? The spirit. It's pretty simple, actually. The moral logic is pretty straightforward, and the equation is pretty simple. It is the spirit. The more and more you understand, and, oh gosh, now we could spend the next several hours just talking about what is this spirit, but the more and more you pursue the spirit of God, the fundamental person of Jesus, if you, the more you just pursue that, Root yourself in that. Surround yourself in that. Well, that is what will lead to the right kind of, kind of tree that you are, the ground that nourishes you, the context of your identity. And it is from there 
that love will essentially emerge. So, are you with me? So the question is, what is love? Can continue to be a very good question, something that we can develop. For us, and for this particular passage in this particular talk, love is just merely the result. It is just merely the natural thing that happens when you're rooted in the spirit. It's kind of that simple. Now that's very abstract, so let me put this into a little bit more concrete, hopefully, terms that will make a, a, a little bit more sense. Do you remember what the spirit of God did in Genesis? Hovering over the darkness and over the waters, and out of that chaos brought new life, order, purpose, everything in its place, flourishing, joy, blessing. The spirit's role in that Genesis account was to take something that had no meaning and purpose and to provide for it meaning and purpose and direction. And so the work that Spark does in rescue is very much in line with this. One of the big questions that happens in work such as benevolence and NGOs and other kinds of um, endeavors uh, such as nonprofits is are you just simply patching up the problem or are you actually getting to the root? One of the big questions that is asked frequently is are you expressing compassion, which is what is known metaphorically as downstream, or are you working for justice, which is upstream? The idea is that if you have a bunch of bodies that are found in the river, and you are there and you're trying to rescue those bodies out of the river, that's good compassion. But the question is, why are they getting into the river in the first place? And so a lot of people in this kind of work are asking some serious root questions. Why is that happening in the first place? And it's very much in line with the moral logic. We're trying to get to the more, most fundamental element of what it means to be a person who cares, where, and to follow the spirit in that sense. If I really want to take chaos and turn it into justice and kindness, I gotta get to the root. Study, this is a really good place. One of the fundamental principles that Danielle has taught in Garden to Garden is what did this mean? Not what does this mean. We, we need to talk about what does this mean. But part of this moral logic, part of this getting to the root, is first asking the question, what did this mean? In other words, what was the Spirit saying to those people in that time, in that day, in their context. So Mahashorash, what's the root? Excellent question. That's a fantastic question that leads you to actually loving and honoring and respecting the text more, rather than creating your own idea of what the text should be. Simply asking the question, simply getting to the root. We have some wonderful therapists in our congregation many of whom I've been blessed to learn from. We've talked about trauma, and one of the things about trauma in this book particularly that articulates the question, what happened to you, is a converse question to the other question, which is, what is wrong with you? That is a very shaming question. What is wrong with you? But Mahashorish, 
what happened? Out from where does this come? Get to the root of it. And it's fascinating, when you do that, the question of what is wrong with you is not very loving, now is it? But getting to the root of it is extremely loving. So many phenomena of everyday life are directly linked to this process of the brain making sense of the world by creating associations and making memories. This is why asking what happened to you is so important in understanding what's going on with you now. What was the spirit doing then? What was happening to you at that particular point? Love God, love your neighbor. What was the spirit of God doing in the early movement of the Israelites at that particular time? And could we, could we inform all of our behavior fundamentally to this root? Listen, I imagine we will continue to have many conversations on morals and ethics and cultural moves and all these kinds of things, and we will, be ha we will have to have those conversations and engage. But Spark throughout its history, from the very beginning, has attempted really hard. We failed, but we've attempted to ask this one question. Whatever interpretation we have of any of these texts, of any of these principles, of any of these morals, is it rooted in this? Love God and love your neighbor. And if it's not loving of God, and if it's not loving of my neighbor, then maybe I have the interpretation wrong. By the way, if I root myself in this, in what the Spirit of God was doing there, it's amazing how much more loving I am to people. Love just happens because I'm trying to root myself in what is core. I see this in the small groups that we have. It's been amazing to watch this community take on this responsibility. And part of what it means to be in a community is to not just say that you like people, say that you appreciate people, say that you love people, but to actually sit in a room and hear one another's stories and share with one another. Um, and groups like As You Are are getting to the most foundational, fundamental pieces of your humanity, of your identity, and of your story. And when you do that, you are actually loving someone else. So my friends, the moral logic is pretty simple. You can focus on the fruit, which is behavior modification. You should be more loving. You should really be more patient. You really need to be more joyful. Can you really self-control, really? Come on, I mean, there's some books on that. But the moral logic here is a very simple principle. Mahashoresh. Mahashoresh. What is the root? In what are we rooted? Where do we plant our feet? What is the well from which we drink? I mean, whatever metaphor, but the tree analogy is this predominant metaphor throughout the scriptures to say, what are we actually rooted in? This community has identified inspiring people to live the way of Jesus, and of course, love and rescue, reputation, reconciliation, resurrection, it's five core values that we feel are the core fundamental roots of the identity of this church and of the way of Jesus. And everything else that we see and everything else that manifests in our community is essentially an emergence out of that. We've had this conversation before where some people will say some question, well, aren't you a liberal church or a conservative church or a progressive church or an affirming church and all these other churches? We are a church rooted 
in Jesus. The fruit that you see is just merely a manifestation of where we're rooted. Or should I say, let us pray and hope that that continues to be the case. As we share in communion, my friends, we come to places like our liturgy and our moment of celebrating this table as another place in our liturgy we are rooted once again. Some people in our community have mentioned how critical and important it is that we say every single week that all are welcome. Well, that's part of our root. And so questions around, in fact, even last week I had somebody say, wait, you're saying that even if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, they're still welcome at the table? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's our root. And it just manifests itself in that kind of behavior. So as we come to this, I want to remind us that this practice and this tradition, this ritual of ours, regrounds us once again. Oh, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. That's why we come to this table. We remind ourselves in what are we rooted. So if we're going to ask ourselves, what does Spark think about X? How is Spark going to do this? What is my life as a Christian supposed to be here? Get rooted in this. What really does the way of Jesus suggest, recommend, provide, provoke, advance, teach? Mahashorish. What's the root? As Craig so wonderfully said, just Jesus. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So my friends, all of you are welcome at this table. Please come as we sing.